Hebrews chapter 12, consider him lest we grow weary and lose heart. Um, you may be in that place tonight, not just because of school, but because of uh, life, because of disappointments, heartache, um, maybe persecution. I don't know. Um, but Hebrews 12, this is God's word. Follow me as I read. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, 
to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's a lot there. Let's pray, and then we're going to work our way through this. Lord, we do thank you. Lord, so many pictures of, of the glories of who you are and what you've done. And pray, Lord, that that would capture our hearts again tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I said, Hebrews is written to weary people who are in danger of losing heart. But as we see in this chapter, the writer of Hebrews is diagnosing the problem, not just persecution, it's that the persecution is threatening to define reality for them. It's not just the persecution, it's the narrative around the persecution and what they think it means. And so the writer of this letter to the Hebrews wants to lift their imagination beyond what they can see with their eyes, the struggle and the suffering, to open their eyes to real reality. I've always loved this quote from this writer, Rodney Clapp, about Christian worship. I think so often we think of worship way too small, and I hope that tonight we can help redress some of that. Here's what Rodney Clapp says about Christian worship. Christian worship is practice in seeing through common sense. And then he's referring to the book of Revelation when he says, to the world of John's day, he's the one who wrote Revelation, common sense was that Rome was invulnerable, that Rome's Lord, Caesar, was the Lord of the earth. But the church, in its liturgy, in its worship, which is what the book of Revelation is, recalled itself to a different and true Lord. Worship is practice in seeing through common sense. What are we to do when we have grown weary? Here's what we're going to talk about tonight. We need to fix our eyes. We need to revise our idea of what being a son or daughter of God feels like. We need to tend to our community because we need it. And we must beware of trivializing God because trivializing God and who he is trivializes the gospel and undermines worship that is marked by reverence and awe. So let's dig in. He, he begins saying, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's a reference to chapter 11. And you remember there were all these witnesses, and you remember what was common to all of them. 
Some of them died persecution. Some of them received their dead back in resurrection. All these kinds of things. But what they all have in common, the end of chapter 11 said, is none of them received what was promised. They were all looking, orienting their life to a city that is coming, but yet they themselves never got it. Now here he says, since we are surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And then maybe a parallel kind of idea. How do you do this? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Not just as the model. I remember when I first started working here at Belmont 28 years ago, the statement of what it meant to be a Christian university was different than it is now. Back in those days, it merely said, we believe Jesus is the Christ and the model for personal behavior. Now, as far as a Christian statement, that's pretty lame. Because it's not enough just to see Jesus as a model for how we are to behave. Christianity is about how he is the savior for moral failure. Not just the model that we try to aspire to be like, okay? And, and that's what the writer here is saying. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author of your faith, and the perfecter of your faith. Do you see the encouragement in that? Fixing your eyes on Jesus is not you kind of whumping up supernatural power so that you got this and can handle this. It is looking to him, in particular, looking to him as the author and the perfecter of our faith. We are to run this race looking to him as the goal and the prize and remembering that he is the one who encourages us. And then it says further that we are to consider him, this is verse 3, who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And like I said, that's an accounting term. Any accounting people here, music business people at least have to take a little of that, right? Yeah, account, oh, I know, yeah, I know one accounting major. Account, it's an accounting term. It says basically total up. All that Jesus endured, lest you grow weary and lose heart. That's why I love that liturgy that we did. Because there are things about Jesus that have comfort to bring to you that you probably rarely think about. The, the fact that he lived in poverty, even his baptism, his circumcision, all of these things that he endured. It's been, it's been said, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, Jesus' suffering did not begin at the cross. His suffering began with the incarnation. And he suffered um, shameful circumstances to be born in a feeding trough. Right? The bread of life born in a feeding trough in Bethlehem, the house of bread. It's beautiful but it also points to the, 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 the shamefulness of the circumstances. He was the king of kings and lord of lords, born in a feeding trough, right? And, and you go on, everything about Jesus that he did, there's some encouragement for you to draw out of that. So we are 
to look to him, to fix our eyes upon him, but also to consider him. That means you have to know something about who he is and what he did. And isn't it glorious that we don't just have one gospel, we have four. Because we need to look at him a lot and we need to know who he is and what he did, right? There's real spiritual value and power in carefully counting up what Jesus suffered. Now, don't be content with just a general idea. When I was your age, I remember I went off to college. My understanding of the gospel was so shallow and superficial. I knew that in some way, Jesus died for our sins. I didn't even really know much beyond that. And I knew that I needed to trust in that. But do you, do you understand, I, at that point, I'm basically holding on to Jesus by sheer willpower because I don't know anything about what he really suffered. The writer of Hebrews, you see, he goes into such great depth because we need to know every little bit of it. The Puritans used to use this image. I don't know if you'll find this disgusting or helpful. I kind of like this image. They used to call, talk about meditating on scripture, meditating on truth as like the cow chewing the cud. In other words, you can eat the Bible, you can taste it, you can chew on it, but then sometimes you gotta spit it up and chew it on it again to get every last little bit of morsel out of it. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Chew on it. Don't be satisfied with superficial kind of sense of, yeah, I know I've got some, some, you know, some, some Jesus suffering in the bank somewhere, but I don't really know how much I have. Don't be satisfied with that. Take a reckoning of what you have, right? So that's the first. The second point, revise your idea of what it feels like to be a true child of God. And this is the uncomfortable part of this section, isn't it? Because I think that we would probably, if we had a choice, trade holiness for comfort. Most of us would, I know we would. Comfort's my idol, ask my wife, right? And, and it, because it's my idol, I often sacrifice things that I could have because I don't want to risk, because I don't want to be uncomfortable, right? This section here speaks about God's love is so profound that he wants to and is committed to changing us, not just getting us a get-out-of-hell-free card, the gospel and relationship with Jesus is not just about what happens when you die. It's about enjoying him now and being transformed even now. And one of God's greatest tools is suffering. Suffering is actually the gateway to joy. It was for Jesus. Look at what it says about the cross, it says um, that he endured, where was, where's that verse? Um, oh, oh, I lost it. Um, two? Oh, yeah, endured the cross. Yeah, thank you. Um, let us fix our eyes, Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. But the cross was the gateway to the joy. And you remember, the disciples didn't get this. On the Mount of Transfiguration, they wanted to just hang out there. Like, it's good to be here, Peter says. It's good to be here. Look, 
we just need to build tents. We just need to build a little, a little retreat center right here. This is awesome. It's beautiful. The Spirit of God is here. And Jesus says, no. We've got to go down the hill. And I've got to go to Jerusalem to die. Because that was the only way to secure glory for his people. Glory that would last. A kingdom that can't be shaken, as the writer to the Hebrews says. And it's like that for us. I think about it this way. Consider, when you are enduring a trial, consider how you would probably do most anything to avoid it, or to end it. And then think about that as a doorway into understanding what it meant for Jesus to love you. Because Jesus actually had a choice. He could have ended his suffering, but he didn't. And it wasn't because he enjoyed it. He despised the shame. But for the joy set before him, what? Psalm 22 tells us it's the inheritance Psalm 22 is a fascinating psalm. It's about first-person experience of somebody who has been crucified way before crucifixion had ever been invented. And then at the end, it takes this fascinating tour. You should go, go, go back, uh, read Psalm 22 sometime. It takes this fascinating turn and speaks about this inheritance that the one who's been crucified will receive this glorious inheritance. And that's a picture of what Hebrews is talking about here. He endured the shame of the cross. And remember, it wasn't the physical torture that caused him to cry out. It was when he felt the Father's displeasure, which he had never felt before. And why? Because he was covered in our sin. That is what caused him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and, and in that, in that, you see, he had the opportunity to say, okay, that's, that's too much. You know, I'd love these people, but that's too much. But he didn't. And when you are in that place of saying, Lord, I would do anything for you to end this, you actually have a doorway into understanding what it felt like for Jesus to love you to the very end. Because he had a choice, and he didn't back down, right? That's how this is a doorway. Now, part of the reason that they're becoming weary, that the writer is worried that they're becoming weary, is because they don't really understand what it means to be a true child of God. And so he actually, he quotes the scripture to them, because the scripture gives us theological orientation to life. He says, you need to remember the scripture that addresses you as sons, you need to remember that God is a good father who trains his children through discipline. He doesn't just leave them to do as they want. I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The most insecure students I've ever met are those whose parents didn't discipline them, to let them do whatever they wanted, right? God is not like that. God actually loves you so much, he'll stand in the way, even if it makes you furious at him. He takes it. He takes it because he loves us and he won't back down, right? Now, this isn't all that the Bible has to say about suffering, okay? 
So you don't, you don't necessarily say, oh, if I'm suffering, here's why. It must be discipline. Now, the Bible says there's suffering for a lot of other reasons, okay? But it says that suffering, suffering is the kind of thing that we should reflect on. What are we to do? Look at verse 9. He says, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and lives? Uh, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as as they thought best, sorry, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems present at the time. It's one of the great understatements in the Bible, isn't it? but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness. So what it's saying here is we are to reflect on God's ways toward us. We're not to make light of them. What does, that, what does that mean? It means we're to reflect on it. We're to think about what God might be teaching us. This is one of the things I've learned the most from these old hymns. And it's one of the reasons that we sing these old hymns is because today most Christians think that if suffering has come into our life, that our calling is to figure out how to make it stop as quick as possible. Now, Christians in older time periods, like that hymn we sang, Whatever My God Ordains is Right, like that was written by a guy, Samuel Rodegast. He wrote that um, back in the 1600s in Germany. He wrote that text for a friend of his who was sick. And in those days, being sick could definitely lead to death. They didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have a lot of things, right? And so they thought the guy was dying and and wrote this. And the guy found such great comfort in this text that his friend wrote for him. He actually recovered. And then he kept requesting that hymn at church over and over and over again. And finally, they put it in the hymnal. Literally, that's what happened. But the two ladies that wrote that tune, Sandra and Latifah, both of them went through excruciating, horrendous suffering and trials and betrayal. And, and, and I love that the original hymn doesn't have that chorus, sweet comfort. Like they didn't have to write that. They found the sovereignty of God, as difficult as that can be sometimes when we're in the midst of trials, to be actually a sweet comfort as they went through it. Like, that's incredible to me. It's incredible to me. I think they wrote that out of an honest place. God had met them. And, and, and often God's children have found that they meet him in the most powerful ways in the midst of suffering. This is why the Jews actually used to pray um, a blessing on their meals after they ate, based on a verse in the Psalms, Lord, help us not to forget you when our bellies are full. God's people were always in more danger when their bellies were full, right? And and what he's saying here is reflect on what God's doing because at the moment it doesn't seem pleasant. And notice the word seem and at the moment. In other words, be careful of interpreting what God's doing by what you understand in the here and now. Stay curious to the fact that he might have something in mind that you don't understand. And remember, he is a good father 
who is committed to your healing, as it says here, to your healing, right? All right, next point. Tend to your community because you need all the help you can get. Look at verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Now, these are all addressed plural to the community. You know that, that, you know, who is my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? That's an awful statement in the Bible, right? You know, that, that, that's, that's not the way we should be, ever be thinking about Christian community. He addresses the community here. You take some responsibility to see that no bitter root grows up in your community because you need each other. You need each other. As far as possible, live at peace with all men. You are to run this race not just solo, but with a community. And we need each other. I love this uh, particular idea. Verse 16, he says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral, is sexually immoral. Again, he's addressing it to the community. You have a community responsibility for how you handle sexuality within your Christian community. It's not just private ethics. And See that no one is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. That was stupid, wasn't it? Because his inheritance rights were worth way more, way more than a single meal. And you know what the writer of Hebrews is saying? You need the Christian community. You need your brothers and sisters to help remind you what's truly valuable. Lest you be tempted to do the same stupid thing. Right? You need one another. And be encouraged that the community actually is bigger than just your friends. As wonderful as they are, you actually have come to the community, he says, of the firstborn. I think some of this language here, he's talking about those who have already been martyred, most likely. And there's references to that same kind of language in the book of Revelation. He's saying your Christian community involves people that are with you now, the people who have went before you. And when you gather and worship, you come to all the angels and the glory. And all of this is all part of God's community, right? All right. Fourth point, remember who we worship. Don't trivialize God. Now, this is, a, this is kind of a wild scene here in verse 18. It's a contrast between Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And if you remember what happened there, they all, all of Israel got to Mount Sinai. They're at the base of the mountain, and God himself spoke. And the people said, holy mackerel, we can't deal with this. Like, we can't deal with this. This is freaking us out. Moses, you go up on the mountain and talk to God. And it says here, even Moses was terrified, okay? So the law given at Mount Sinai is a really big deal. I, I, I find it so fascinating sometimes. I'll talk to students and be like, you know, I don't, I'm not really into the like, Old Testament God of like smoke and fire and judgment, you know? I like the New Testament God, you know, who, who's loving a loving father. And I'm like, you do realize that our God is a consuming fire is from Hebrews chapter 12, that's not from the Old Testament. That's the New Testament. And he covers you like a mother hen with his wings. That's from the Psalms. So be careful about thinking that you have this contrast between an Old Testament wrathful God and a New Testament loving God. 
God is God, always has been. There's no shadow of turning in him, as the old hymn says, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But what's new? Jesus is our mediator. So the giving of the law to Moses at, at Mount Sinai was terrifying. The glory cloud in the Old Testament was terrifying. Okay? But you know what was even more terrifying? The Mount of Transfiguration. Because the glory came out of Jesus. It didn't just rest on him. This is Matthew 17, verse 2. There, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light because it's coming out from him. He's revealing just a bit of who he actually is. He's shielded his glory from them. So when you come to Jesus, you don't come to a, a, a warm, fuzzy teddy bear. You come to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I've always loved this uh, Annie Dillard quote. Maybe you've read this. She says, why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Don't trivialize God. To trivialize God is to trivialize the gospel. Don't, don't basically just rule out the possibility that God could be a consuming fire and that not dealing with him through the mediation of Jesus is not a thing you want to do. Don't trivialize God. You know, we don't really appreciate being cleansed I think so often because I think we feel like we're pretty good already. I've always thought it fascinating that Jesus compares the kingdom of God to the greatest party that you've ever been a part of. And you know why I think most of us don't really resonate with that image? Because we don't really appreciate what a big deal it is that we've been invited. We just kind of have the attitude that it wouldn't be a party if I wasn't there. Of course I'm invited, right? And that is, of course, to trivialize the invitation. And there's no way that your worship of God will be marked with reverence and awe if you think that, of course, you're invited. If, if, that, doesn't, if that doesn't shake you to your core, that you have been invited to an audience with the King of Kings and he welcomes you, and he throws his arms around you, if that doesn't blow you away, well, I don't know what to say. What um, Richard Niebuhr said years ago, he meant this about liberal theology in the early part of the century, but I think it's true of a lot of Christians today. I hope it's not, but I think it is. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through Christ without a cross. If we throw out everything that offends us about the gospel, there's no power. 
there's no power. Last thing, don't trivialize the relationship we now have with God and the privileges that it brings. Again, this contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Let me just open this up for you just briefly. There's a difference between a terrifying mountain versus the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of joy, the city of the living God. And here's the thing about the city of joy. We get access No longer do we stand at the base of the mountain cowering in fear. Now we're actually brought into the very presence of God, welcomed into the presence of God. And as the book of Hebrews said earlier, boldly invited to come before him, right? Not only do we get access to the city, verse 23 says, we've come to the living God, to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out for vengeance. The blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness. That's better. That's better. And that's what we have. And we come to a city that can never be shaken, a kingdom, a city that can never be shaken. You know why? Because Jesus was shaken to the core. But the city in Revelation, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, the city in Revelation, the gates are open. Why? What's that image? It's this, cities are places where you can be protected because they shut their gates up at night. But the city of God, the gates are wide open. It's so secure that it doesn't even need to close the gates, right? He concludes this way. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God with reverence and law. Thankful because we receive the kingdom, we don't earn it. Two things drive real worship. One is awe and reverence, seeing God as transcendent. The other is the security we have in the gospel, the unshakable kingdom that produces real intimacy. Trivialize God and you trivialize the gospel and you undermine the true worship that should mark God's people and make them bold in the face of persecution and trials. Again, Hebrews wants to lift our eyes, our imaginations, beyond the struggle and suffering, to see through common sense. Hebrews calls us to see Jesus so clearly that we can say to the world, we don't believe your lies anymore. Uh, My favorite story about this is uh, this guy, Václav Havel. He was the president of the Czech Republic. The Czech Republic overthrew communism in what's called the Velvet Revolution. It wasn't a bloody revolution. Václav Havel, who became the first president, was asked about this to explain how this happened. And Václav Havel, who's also a Christian and who was also a playwright, so a Christian artist, said this. He said, during the days of communism, we had our parallel society. He means the Christians. And in that parallel society, we wrote our plays and sang our songs and read our poems until we knew the truth so well that we could go out into the streets of Prague and say to the communists, we don't believe your lies anymore, and communism had to fall. That's what Christian worship is about. So we can go out into the world and say, we don't believe your lies anymore. We are inheriting an unshakable kingdom. It's true. Let's pray.